Spectrum's next. Welcome to Spectrum, the science and technology show on KALX Berkeley, a bi-weekly 30-minute program bringing you interviews featuring Bay Area scientists and technologists, as well as a calendar of local events and news. Hi, and good afternoon. My name is Brad Swift. I'm the host of today's show. Today we present part one of two interviews with Steve Blank, a lecturer at the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley. Steve has been a serial entrepreneur in Silicon Valley since the late 1970s. See if you recognize any of these companies he was involved with. Zilog, Convergent Technologies, MIPS Computer, Ardent, Supermac, Rocket Science Games, and Epiphany. In 1999, Steve retired from day-to-day involvement in running a company. Since 2002, he's been teaching and developing curriculum for entrepreneurship training. By 2011, he was said to have devised the scientific method for launching high-tech startups, dubbed the Lean Launchpad. In Part 1, Steve talks about his beginnings, the culture of Silicon Valley, the intersection of science, technology, finance, and business. Steve Blank, welcome to Spectrum. Oh, Thanks for having me. I wanted to find out from you how it is you got started as an entrepreneur. What attracted you to that? It's probably the military. I uh, spent four years in the Air Force during Vietnam and a year and a half in Southeast Asia. Then uh, when I came back to the United States, I worked on uh, B-52 bombers in the Strategic Air Command. And I finally, years later, understood the difference between working in a crisis organization, which was in a war zone where almost anything was acceptable to get the job done, versus an execution organization that was dealing with mistakes meant dropping a 20-megaton nuclear weapon where you process and procedure was actually imperative. And it turned out I was much better in the organizations that required creativity and agility and tenacity and resilience, and I never understood I was getting the world's best training for entrepreneurship. I went back to school in Ann Arbor and managed to get thrown out a second time in my life out of University of Michigan. I call that the best school I was ever thrown out of. Uh, Michigan State was the next best school where I was a pre-med. And then um, I was sent out to Silicon Valley. I was working as a field service engineer in what I didn't realize two years later was a 16-person startup to bring up a computer system in a place called San Jose. And San Jose was so unknown that my admin got us tickets for San Jose, Puerto Rico until I said, I think it's not out of the country. I came out there to do a job to install a process control system. I thought it was some kind of joke is that there were 45 pages of advertisements in a newspaper at the time for scientists, engineers, etc. And I flew back and quit, (laughs) got a job at my first startup in Silicon Valley. And subsequently, I did eight of them in 21 years. What were some of the ones that stand out out of the eight? You know, I had some great successes. Uh, There were four IPOs uh, out of the eight. I'd say one or two I had something to do with. The others I was just kind of standing there when the safe fell on the guy in front of me and the money dropped down and I got to pick it up. But honestly, in hindsight, and I can now say this only in hindsight, I learned the most from some of the failures. Though I wouldn't tell you I wanted to learn that at the time. 
but failing and failing hard when it was absolutely clear it was your fault and no one else's forced me to go through the stages of denial and then blame others and then whatever and then acceptance and then ultimately kind of some real learning about how to build early stage ventures. You know, I blew my next to last company. I was on the cover of Wired magazine and 90 days after the cover, I realized my company was going out of business and it eventually did. And I called my mother who was a Russian immigrant And every time I spoke to my mother, I had a pause because English wasn't her first language. And, you know, I'd say something and pause, and then she'd say something back and pause and whatever. I said, Mom, I lost $35 million. Pause. And then she said, where'd you put it? I said, said, no, 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 Mom, I'm calling you to tell you, no, 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 I didn't even get the next sentence out because then she went, oh, my gosh, you lost $35 million. We can't even change your name. It's already blank. And then she started thinking about it. And she said, and the country we came from is gone. There's nowhere for us to go. I said, no, no, Mom, what I'm trying to tell you is that the people who gave me $35 million just gave me another $12 million to do the next startup. And it was incomprehensible because what I find when I talk to foreign visitors to Silicon Valley or to any entrepreneurial cluster you know, we have a special name for failed entrepreneur in Silicon Valley. Do you know what it is? Experienced. It's a big idea. In the U.S., around entrepreneurial clusters, failure equals experience. People don't ask you if you change your name or have to leave town or you're going to go bankrupt, etc. The first thing your best friend will ask you is, so what's your next startup? That's an amazing part of this culture that we've built here. And that's what happened to me. My last startup, I returned a billion dollars each to those two investors. And it's not a story about me. It's a story about the ecosystem that we live in that's both supremely American and supremely capitalist, but also supremely clustered in just a few locations in the United States. Were there clear reasons why one succeeded, some succeeded, some failed? You know, when I retired from my last one, I decided that after eight startups in 21 years, my company was about to go public and my kids were seven and eight years old at the time. And luckily, we had children when I was in my late 30s, and so therefore I got to watch people I admired incredibly at work, watch how they dealt with their families. And what was surprising is that most of them had feet of clay when it came to home. They basically focused 100% of their efforts at work. And as their kids grew up, their kids hated them. I kind of remember that in the back of my head. And so when I had the opportunity to retire, I said, I want to watch my kids grow up. And so I did. And that's a preamble to answer your question that said, and for the first time in my life, my head wasn't down completely inside trying to execute in a single company. I had a chance to reflect on the 21 years. And believe it or not, I started to write my memoirs. Uh, and I got, you know, what I realize now in hindsight, it was actually an emotional catharsis of kind of purging what did I learn. And I actually was 80 pages into it writing, here was a vignette. And I would write lessons learned from each of those experiences. And what I realized truly, the hair was standing up on back of my neck on page 80. There was a pattern I had never recognized in my career And I realized no one else had recognized it either, and either I was very wrong or there might be some truth, and here was the pattern. In Silicon Valley, since the beginning, we had treated startups like they were smaller versions of large companies. Everything a large company did, the investment wisdom was, well, they write business plans, you write business plans. They organize sales, marketing, and biz dev, and you do that. They write income statement, balance sheet, and cash flow, and do five-year plans, and you do that too. 
never noticing that, in fact, the distinction, and no one had ever said this before, what large companies do is execute known business models. And the emphasis is on execution, on process. What a known business model means is we know who our customer is. We know how to sell it. We know who competitors are. We know what price. In an existing company, it's existing because somebody in the dim past figured that stuff out. But what a startup is doing is not executing. You think you're executing. That's what they told you to go do. But reality, you failed most of the time because you were actually searching for something. You were just guessing. In front of my students uh, here at Berkeley and at Stanford, I use the word you have a series of hypotheses that are untested, but that's a fancy word for it. You're just guessing. And so the real insight was somebody needed to come up with a set of tools for startups that were different than the tools that were being taught on how to run and manage existing corporations. And that tool set and distinction at the turn of this century didn't exist. That is, in 1999, there was not even a language to describe what I just said. And I decided to embark on building the equivalent of the management stack that large corporations have for founders and early-stage ventures. listening to Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. Steve Blank is our guest. He is an entrepreneur and lecturer at the Haas School of Business. In the next segment, he talks about collaborating with the National Science Foundation. So when you're advising scientists and engineers who think they might be interested in trying to do a startup, what do you tell them they need to know about business and business people? It's funny you mentioned scientists and engineers because I didn't know too many early in my career. I mean, I sold to them as customers. But in the last three or four years, I got to know some of the top scientists in the U.S. from a very funny experience. Can I tell you what happened? It turned out that this methodology I've been talking about, how to build startups efficiently with customer development and agile engineering and one other piece called the business model canvas, this theory ended up being called the lean startup. One of my students, Eric Reese, I had actually invested in his company and then actually made him sit through my class at Berkeley because his co-founder had lost my money last time I invested. I said, no, no, sit through my class. And, of course, his co-founder was slow to get it, but Eric got it in a second, became the first practitioner of customer development, the first lean startup practitioner in the world. Eric got it so much, he became the Johnny Appleseed of the idea. In fact, it was actually Eric's insight that customer development and agile development went together, and he named it the lean startup. But even though we had this theory, the practice was really kind of hard. It was like liking the furniture in Ikea until you got the pieces at home and then realized it was kind of hard to assemble. So what I decided to do is take the pieces and teach entrepreneurs in a way they have never been taught before on how to start a company. Now, this requires a two-minute sidebar. Can I mm-hmm. give you? Mm-hmm. It turns out one of the other things that I've been involved with is entrepreneurial education. As I teach here at Haas, but I also teach at Stanford, at UCSF, and at Columbia. 
But entrepreneurship used to be kind of the province mostly of business schools, and we used to teach entrepreneurs just like they were accountants. No one ever noticed that accountants don't run startups. It's a big idea. No one ever noticed that, gee, we don't teach artists that way and we don't teach brain surgeons that way, that is, sit in the class, read these cases like you were in law school, and somehow you'll get smarter and know how to be an operating CEO of an early-stage venture. Now, with this, you have to understand that when I was an entrepreneur, rapacious was a polite word to describe my behavior. And my friends who knew me as an entrepreneur would laugh when they realized I was an educator and say, Steve, you were born entrepreneur. You know you can't teach entrepreneurship. You can't be taught. You were born that way. Now, since I was teaching entrepreneurship, this set up somewhat of a conundrum in my head. And I pondered this for a couple of years until I realized it's the question everybody asks, but it was the wrong question. Of course you could teach entrepreneurship. The question is that we've never asked is who can you teach it to? And that, once you frame the question that way, you start slapping your forehead because you realize that founders of companies, they're not like accountants or MBAs. I mean, they were engineers. They might be by training and background. But founders, visionaries, they're closer to artists than anybody else in the world. And we now know how to teach artists for the last 500 years since the Renaissance. How do we teach artists? Well, we teach them theory, but then we immerse them in experiential practice until they're blue in the face or the hands fall off or they never want to look at another brush or instrument or write another novel again in their life. We just beat them to death as apprentices, but we get their hands dirty. Or brain surgeons. Yeah, they go to school, but there's no way you'd ever want to go to a doctor who hadn't cracked open chests or skulls or whatever or a surgeon. But we were teaching entrepreneurship like somehow you could read it from the book. My class at Stanford was one of the first experiential, hands-on, immersive, full-body experiences. And, and I mean immersive is that basically we train our teams in theory that they're going to frame hypotheses with something called the business model canvas from a very smart guy named Alexander Osterwalder. They were going to test those hypotheses by getting outside the building outside the university, outside their lab, outside of anywhere, and talk eyeball to eyeball to 10 to 15 customers a week, people they've never met, and start validating or invalidating those hypotheses. And they were going to, in parallel, build as much of the product as they can with this iterative and incremental development using agile engineering, whether it was hardware or software or medical device, doesn't matter. I want you to start building this thing and also be testing that. Now, this worked pretty well for 20- and 22-year-old students with hoodies and flip-flops, but it was open question if this would work with scientists and engineers. And about three years ago, I was driving on campus, and I got a call, and it went like this. Hi, Steve. You don't know me. My name is Errol Arkelik. I'm the head of the National Science Foundation SBIR program. We're from the U.S. government. We're calling you because we need your help. And because I was still a little bit of a jerk, I said, the government got my help during Vietnam. I'm not giving it anymore. Thank you. And he went, no, 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 no. We're talking about your class. I went, how do you know about my class? They said, well, you've blogged every session of it. And I just tend to open source everything I do, which is a luxury I have not being a tenured professor. Uh, You know, I, I think giving back to our community is one of the things that Silicon Valley excels at. And I was mentored and tutored by people who gave back. And so, therefore, since I can do it, I give back by open sourcing almost everything I do. If I learn it, my slides are out there, and I write about it, and I teach it. And so I was sharing the experiences of teaching this first class. I didn't realize there were 25 people at the National Science Foundation following every class session. 
And I didn't even know who the National Science Foundation was. And they had to explain, well, Steve, we give away $7 billion a year. We're the group that funds all basic science in universities in the U.S. We're only number two to the National Institute of Health, which is the largest funder of uh, medical and uh, research in the U.S. And that's great. So why are you calling? We want you to do this class for the government. I said, for the government? I thought you guys just fund people. He said, no, we're under a mandate from the U.S. Congress, all research organizations, is that if any scientist wants to commercialize their basic research, we have programs called the SBIR and STTR programs that give anywhere from $500,000 in the first phase or up to three-quarters of a million dollars in phase two or more for scientists who want to build companies. Well, why are you calling me? And Errol nicely said, well, thank God Congress doesn't actually ask how well those teams are doing. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? He said, well, we're essentially giving away cars without requiring driver's ed. <laughs> and you can imagine the result. And I said, okay, but what did you see in what I'm doing? He said, Steve, you've invented the scientific method for entrepreneurship. We want you to teach scientists. They already know the scientific method. Our insight here is they'll get what you're doing in a second. You just need to teach them how to do it outside the building. And so within 90 days, I got a bunch of my VC friends, John Fiber and Jim Horenthal and Jerry Engel and a bunch of others, and we put together a class for the National Science Foundation as a prototype. They got 25 teams headed up by principal investigators in material science and robotics and computer science and fluidics and teams of three from around the country, and we put them through this 10-week process, and we trained scientists how to get outside the building and test hypotheses. And the results were spectacular, so much so that the NSF made it a permanent program. I trained professors from Georgia Tech and University of Michigan, who then went off to train 15 other universities. It's now the third largest accelerator in the world. We just passed 300 teams of our best scientists. Let me exhale and tell you the next step, which really got interesting. This worked for National Science Foundation, but I had said that this would never work for life sciences. Because life sciences, therapeutics, cancer, I mean, you know, you get a paper in Cell, Nature, and Science, and maybe 15 years later, you know, something happens, and gee, you know, what's the problem? If you cure cancer, you don't have a problem finding customers. But at the same time, I've been saying this, UCSF, which is probably the leading biotech university in the world here in San Francisco, was chasing me to actually put on this class for them. And I kept saying, no, you don't understand. I, I say it doesn't work. And they said, Steve, we are the experts in this. We say it does. And finally, they called my bluff and said, well, why don't you get out of the building with us and talk to some of the leading venture capitalists in this area who basically educated me that said, look, the traditional model of drug companies for pharma has broken down. They're now looking for partnerships. Obamacare and, and the new health care laws have changed how reimbursement works. Digital health is an emerging field. You know, medical devices, those economics have changed. So we decided to hold the class for life sciences, which is really a misnomer. It was a class for four very distinct fields, for therapeutics, diagnostics, devices, and digital health. Out of UCSF in October 2013 is an experiment. First, we didn't know if anybody would be interested because, unlike the NSF, we weren't going to pay the teams. We were going to make them pay nominal tuition at UCSF. And we were going after clinicians and researchers, and they have day jobs. Well, surprisingly, we had 78 teams apply for 25 slots, and we took 26 teams, including Hobart Harris, who was the head of surgery of UCSF, Mike Harrison, the inventor of fetal surgery. Two teams didn't even tell Genentech. They were sneaking out at night, <laughs> taking the class as well. And the results, I have to tell you, I still smile when I talk about this, exceeded everybody's wildest expectations such that we went back to Washington, took the results to the National Institute of Health, 
And something tells me that in 2014, the National Institute of Health will probably be the next major government organization to adopt this class and this process. Again, none of this guarantees success, and these are all going to turn into winners. What it does is actually allow teams to fail fast, allows us to be incredibly effective about the amount of cash we spend, because we could figure out where the mistakes are rather than just insisting that we're right. But we now have a process that we've actually tested. I got a call from the National Science Foundation about six months ago that said, Steve, we thought we'd tell you we need to stop the experiment. And I thought, what? what do you mean? Well, we got some data back on the effectiveness of the class. He said, well, we didn't believe the numbers. You know, as we told you, we've been running this SBIR program for 30 years. And what happens to the teams who want to get funded after, it's kind of a double-blind review. People don't know who they are. They review their proposals. And they, on average, got funded 18% of the time. Teams that actually have taken this class get funded 60% of the time. I thought we might have improved effectiveness 10 20%, but this was 300%. Now, let's be clear. It wasn't that was some liquidity event as they went public. It was just a good precursor on the march to how much did they know about customers and channels and partners and product market fit, et cetera. And for the first time, somebody had actually instrumented the process, so much so that the National Science Foundation now requires anybody applying for a grant. It's no longer an option to get out of the building and talk to 30 customers before they could even show up at the conference to get funded. That was kind of the science side, and that's still going on. And I'm kind of proud that we might have made a dent in how the government thinks for National Science Foundation stuff, commercialization, and how the National Institute of Health might be thinking about what's called translational medicine. But running those 127 clinicians and researchers through the UCSF program was really kind of amazing. show on KALX Berkeley. Our guest is Steve Blank, a lecturer at UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business. In the next segment, he goes into more detail about the Lean Startup, also known as the Lean Launchpad. Launchpad. Startup Launchpad, is that? Well, there's two things. The class is called the Lean Launchpad. The Lean Launchpad. And the software we built for the National Science Foundation and now we use in classes and for corporations is called Launchpad Central. We've basically built software that for the first time allows us to manage and view the innovation process as we go. Think of it as Salesforce.com, which is a sales automation tool for salespeople. Mm -hmm. We now have a tool for the first time for entrepreneurs and the people working with them and managing them and trying to keep track of them. And we just crossed 3,000 teams who are using the software. And I use it in everything I teach and do. How long does the class take for a scientist or engineer who might be trying to think about, well, what's the time sink here? There's a uh, shock to the system version, which I taught at Caltech and now teach twice a year at Columbia, which is five days, 10 hours a day. But the one that we teach for the National Science Foundation, the one I teach at Stanford and Berkeley, 
Stanford, it's a quarter. At Berkeley, it's a semester. For NSF, it depends. It's about an eight to ten week class. You could do this over a period of time. There's no magic. There is kind of the magic in quantity of people you talk to. And it's just a law of numbers. You talk to 10 people, I doubt you're going to find any real insight in that data. You talk to 1,000 people, you know, you're probably, if you still haven't found the repeatable pattern, probably 20x too many or 10x too many. 100 just seem to be kind of a good centroid. And what you're really looking for is what we call product market fit. And there are other pieces of the business model that are important. But the first two things you're looking at is, are you building something that people care about? And by care about, I don't mean say, oh, that's nice. I mean is when you show it to them, do they grab it out of your hands or grab you by the collar and say, you're not leaving until I can have this? Oh, <laughs> and by the way, if you built the right thing or your idea is in the right place, you will find those people. That's not a sign of a public offering, but it's at least a sign that you're on the right track. Part two of this interview with Steve Blank in two weeks on Spectrum. In that interview, Steve talks more about the lean launchpad, the challenge of innovation in modern commerce, the evolution of entrepreneurship, and the pace of technology. Steve's website is a trove of information and resources. Go to steveblank, all one word, dot com. Steve also mentioned the Lean Launchpad course available on Udacity. That's udacity.com. Spectrum shows are archived on iTunes University. We have created a simple link for you. The link is tinyurl.com slash K-A-L-X Spectrum. Now a few of the science and technology events happening locally over the next two weeks. Naya Shah joins me for the calendar. Dr. Claire Kremen, a previous guest on Spectrum, is a professor in the Environmental Science Policy and Management Department at UCB. She is a co-director of the Center for Diversified Farming Systems and a co-faculty director of the Berkeley Food Institute. Claire Kremen will be giving a talk on Monday, March 10th at 3 p.m. in Morgan Hall Lounge. She will be talking about pollinators as a poster child for diversified farming systems. Dr. Kremen's research on pollinators has attracted national news coverage and is of great importance to California agriculture. The talk will be followed by a reception with snacks and drinks. Again, this will be Monday, March 10th at 3 p.m. in Morgan Hall Lounge. The Science at Cal lecture for March will be delivered by Dr. Troy Lionberger. The topic is genetics. The lecture is Saturday, March 15th at 11 a.m., in room 159 of Mulford Hall. 
Now, a single news story presented by Nea Shah. Just over a week ago, UC Berkeley's own Jennifer Doudna, a professor of several biology and chemistry classes at Cal, was awarded the Lurie Prize in the Biomedical Sciences. For her work on revealing the structure of RNA and its roles in gene therapy, Doudna will receive the Lurie Medal and a $100,000 award this May in Washington, D.C. The Lurie Prize is awarded by the Foundation for the National Institutes of Health, and this is its second year of annually recognizing young scientists in the biomedical field. Doudna was originally intrigued by the 1980 breakthrough that RNA could serve as enzymes, in contrast to the previously accepted notion that RNA was exclusively for protein production. Doudna's work today with RNA deals specifically with a protein known as Cas9, which can target and cut parts of the DNA of invading viruses. Doudna and her collaborators made use of this knowledge of Cas9 to develop a technique to edit genes, which will hopefully lead to strides in human gene therapy. Doudna is delighted by her recent recognition and confident in the future of RNA research and the medical developments that will follow. The music heard during the show was written and produced by Alex Simon. Thank you for listening to Spectrum. If you have comments about the show, please send them to us via email. Our email address is spectrum.kalx at yahoo.com. Join us in two weeks at this same time. <laughs>